So thank you for tuning tuning into another episode of uh, My Mortality Matters, the Voices in the Lives of the Black Men. And um, as you know, if you're a regular listener, um, if you're a new listener, this podcast is really geared towards a lot of the black men. As I have explained, um, the death of George Floyd really got me thinking and got me energized to do something different. And this is my thing to do, my different, um, to amplify our voices as black men and how we are um, treated in the world, but also how we are resilient and persistent in our lives. And we have coping strategies and um, our support systems really keep us moving forward. And through the podcast, I have tried to bring you amazing, well, I have I have brought you amazing Black men, and that will continue today. As today, my guest is Mr. Morgan Wilson. Um, he's in a phenomenal young man in Philadelphia. Yeah, it's a young man. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I, I take all of that. I take all of that. Bro. You're welcome. I'm here to help. Uh, he's, a, he's an amazing work in the city along with his partner, Dr. R.J. Allen Wilson. And I am so excited he took the time today to, sp- to spend time with me and to talk to us about his life. So, Morgan, how are you today, sir? Doing wonderful, John. Wonderful. Well, first of all, man, wonderful Dr. John Taylor. Let me just start off by saying that. <laughs> doctor. He's a doctor now. <laughs> Amen to that, my brother. Amen. Amen. Congratulations once again. Congratulations to you. I know it's been a long slog, but you have persevered and, and got through, man, and well-deserved and well-earned. So, man, kudos to you. Congratulations once again. I know I've told you multiple times in person and so forth, but <laughs> just congratulations again, man, for sure. No, I, no, I really appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a process. And uh, I'm like, I need a break now, but I can't take a break now. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> no, but, but man, no, who, who much is given, much is required, bro. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> I know. But I am gearing up for the next chapter. That's going to come out soon. And uh, I'm going to excited to talk more about that later. But today, Morgan, so um, why don't you do in the beginning, just tell people who you are, describe what you do in the world and all those wonderful things. Sure, sure, sure. Well, who am I? Okay. Well, um, born and ra- born, raised, educated in the city of Philadelphia. I'm a father, a grandfather, a son, a brother, an uncle, a cousin, entrepreneur, Lover of sports. I'm a foodie slash low-key chef. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know, man. I have a ferocious appetite uh, to be curious and explore and learn. You know, always be open for uh, the newness of life, if you will. You know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but most importantly, quite frankly, I am the husband to a lovely and wonderful and comparable Dr. R.G. Allen Wilson, which you mentioned earlier. Um, so I'm many things, man. I'm many things, but uh, that's mm-hmm. who I am. Uh, that's who I am. That's great. Yeah, all those things and then some. So talk to us a little bit about your work, like what, what, what you're do? involved in. Yeah, what do you what do you do? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, um, as I mentioned, I'm you know, married to R.G. and um, Dr. Allen Wilson, and part of what we do. Uh, in terms of her practice, she's a psychologist and mental health professional. To be specific, a manager, family therapist, and uh, I handle all the business side. So, you know, we have two, we have a three-pronged approach. We have the clinical side, which is Faith Connects, LLC. Uh, we have a, a, a business media side because um, RG is, is a, I guess you would call a media personality. She's always on, you know, national network TV shows and so news shows and local shows and it's as going on as an expert in the mental health field um i handled all that she's the author of a book called courageous conversations connect um so all speaking engagements those kind of things i do the business media and 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 growth side of the business that's what i do um my background is in marketing and sales i worked in corporate america um Basically, left Corporate America in 2014, worked for CAPS and Higher Education. I was the Regional Director of um, Educational Sales. Um, I had an insurance background, financial services background, did that. So um, my background is, is in sales and marketing. And so when I left Corporate America in 2014, you know, trying to figure out what my next move is, what, what would be and how to pivot, um, you know, sometimes you got to just look in your immediate surroundings and say, you know, you know how can I do some things differently? Um, RG was looking to leave um, her position with Drexel. And so we 
put together a business plan on how we scale it out. I just brought my expertise to um, her existing brand and, and, and model and um, and uh, we came together as a couple and you know ventured off into the land, the wonderful world of entrepreneurship and uh, scaling our business and that's what we're doing. So. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 great, great, great work you all are doing, and great work you know as you are the 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 business side of these of this process. You're doing right. amazing work, and you know, and ex, and exposure and uh, putting the brand out. So, how do you like when we think about like um, as black men living in America in the world, and we have experienced a lot of you know, things in our lives. How will you describe your experience as a black man from your, I would say, if you think about from your childhood to current, what are some mm. of the things you remember the most or defining moments when you identify, hey, I'm a black guy and this is what's happening to me? Right, Any of those right. you can think of? Oh man, sure. Wow. <laughs> I'm a black man. I have stories, man. I'm a black man. I got stories for you. And 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 growing up in yeah, that's where you grew up in Philadelphia, more specifically Southwest Philadelphia as a black man. Um uh my story is not unlike many black men, single mom, although I didn't start off that way. Um, my mom and dad were married, and um, but that life happens, it takes place. People, you know, go through their issues and so forth, and um, they broke up and divorced, and I was all of two and a half, three years old. Um, but as many of us can tell the story, I had a praying grandmother who filled in the gap when the gap was need to be filled. And so I grew up in that kind of environment and had a foundation. But when you, you know, when when I, I guess anticipation of this podcast and you, you know, interviewing me, really thinking about what were the things and events that shaped and molded my life as it comes to being a black man. And one of the things was that, you know, early on, uh, my uncle was a, was a police officer and, um, and, um, a decorated one, is, uh, to be to, to be sure, and he was like this larger than life figure for me. So early on in my childhood, um, police officers were heroes to me. Hmm. It was a whole different perspective. I mean, our families were were revered and, and respected in the community on the block. You know, my uncle was he was tall and regal and six five and just a slim strap and strong man and he rose through the ranks and he was a sharpshooter for Philadelphia Police Department and he wore the uh, the black leathers and all that and, and, the, and the, you know, the big boots and all that. I mean, you know, oh, so yeah. he was, I had a, my, my whole mindset was different. Uh -huh. Fast forward a few years and some things changed, meaning he um, unfortunately had a situation within the police department. Uh, I won't go into detail, but um, they parted ways, and then it, it turned me. It certainly turned weird for me. Um, I got to see the negative underpinnings of the police department, and, you know, all the goings on. So therefore, the scab was ripped off. And so I know that's what part of the thing we're going to talk about is, uh, you know, the whole George Floyd incident and police brutality and so forth and so on. So yeah. you know, my framework of of police officers and engagement between police officers and black men. Early on was, you know, they were just heroes. Mm -hmm. But then the ugliness of it certainly came into my life um, when um, he was, you know, unceremoniously, you know, had to leave the police department. Um, so, you know, it was shaped differently at that point. Uh, you know, the respect wasn't there. You know, I, I, I got to see the ugly side of it all. And so, um, you know, and so, you know, when we talk about this stuff, we have to understand our history around you know, what the police department was, how it was basically formed. I mean, police policing was structured and, and, and formed basically to recapture runaway slaves. Yes. You know, it, you, you gotta understand what the whole premise was. Policing wasn't always there, you know? <laughs> and so, and so, and the, its genesis was the negative towards us as a people. So it stands to reason why we would have a, a different view of policing. Our history, our very history, was all negative. You know, the whole paddy wagon thing. You know, that was, you know, you gotta, so I would suggest people do their homework, you know, Google, research what 
policing was all about and how it was established. And I don't want to run off. I can go on and on about it. So <laughs> it but was no, something that, no, it was it was, it was negatively impactful for us generationally. So, you know, I'll stop there, but Right, no, but I think that, no, no, I think that's fine because that's important because I think it's important to highlight the beginning. It's also interesting to hear how you, with your uncle, how you saw him as this larger-than-life figure, right? And your view of the police was, you know, was shaped by him, I guess, and also shaped through his experience with them at the, at the other end of that as well. Sure. But I, but I think when you, when you look at like some of the stories that we hear, like the, how the police got started and historical and them paddy wagons and just all of that, all that history we have. How do you view your experiences with the police? If you, if you had any direct experience with the police at all or, or friends you may have had, what's your experience with, the, oh. with direct contact with police that may have not have been as great as you would think it should be? Uh, um, listen, so, you know, work hard, um, in my younger, uh, early twenty, late teens, early twenties, you know, having a car. At those, at that time, it was the early eighties, and you know, rap was in full bloom, and you know, all the negative images of a black man in a in a nice car. And I was young, so I had to navigate the waters and understand how to comport myself. It was a different time at that at that time. So I had a specific type of car. I had a, had a uh, Grand Prix. At that time, this, this was a particular car that it was deemed as a, a young black thug type car. I had it all souped up and everything else. I was young. I was, you know, trying to be fly and do my own thing. <laughs> so I wanted to hit ride that of the day at that time, had me a big old banging sound system and the whole night y'all. So, but I wasn't a thug, but that wasn't quote unquote the uh, the image that was out there. And so, you know, there I was, you know, basically, you know, being profiled all the time. So mm-hmm. I would get stopped all the time. But I had to learn early on about how to comport myself, the whole 10 and two, you know, yeah. you know, one of the things you talked about and, and if you want to have a conversation was the talk, for example. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. That was given that was given to me early on. We know every black man in America have has had to talk with their family. It right, is right. absolutely a requirement for us to, to survive in, in this country. So I understood that and also being stopped, you know, um, uh, multiple times in this car, you know, you know, I was subjecting myself to all sorts of stuff. Now, through the grace of God, you know, nothing negative happened other than me just, yes, officer, no officer, tending to hear your officer, talking to him respectfully, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and let's be honest, you know, people want to say keep it real, but I, I had to code switch, you know, and, and change my tone of voice, watch my mannerisms, because I don't know what this white man on the other end of this badge, on the opposite end of this badge, if he had a bad day, or if I, I just, I, what I didn't want to do is piss this man off to give him right. any reason or excuse to harm me. Right. You know, right. I, I just, I, I, I understood that early on, part and parcel, because of the talk that my uncle, who, who was a former police officer, gave to me and my mama and everybody else. They drilled into my head. So, you know, this is what you had to learn to do at that time. So I didn't have, I haven't had any direct negative, uh, you know, um, harmful impact from police officers, but certainly a slew of my friends and family have, and I've heard the stories and then sort of been somewhat of a, a, a witness bystander to police brutality, pulling a guy out the car who just wasn't going to do what I did to capitulate and watch this dude get his head bashed in. Right. I've, yeah. seen, that. I've seen that. Yeah, I think it's interesting too, like, you know, as I just finished my, my research recently, looking at black men and how we felt about the police and violence and mental health and sexual behavior, one of the things a lot of the guys did indicate was to talk with their parents. However, a lot of men who have parents gave them the talk, went through all those steps, were also sometimes harmed by the police. So while the talk, I think, is, is helpful, um, in some conversations, it's not a guarantee of survival or safety. Absolutely um, not. No, it's not a guarantee. It, what it does, it just ups your percentage of possible survival. 
because right. you know right. there were you know, listen at though at that time there was a, a special squad in the police department because you know, I came through Philadelphia notorious uh, police commissioner that later became a mayor was Frank Rizzo. Frank Rizzo is a, is is a is a polarizing name in this city. I've and heard. Frank Rizzo had, I mean, stormtrooper type dude held them boot cops, and these cops they wore. So let me go back, let you understand the context for me. My dad, my dad, my uncle rather was a former boot cop. He was a a sharpshooter for Rizzo Special Squad, one of the few black men that made that squad at the time. And so you again understand the backdrop for me. Here I got mm-hmm. somebody in my family that was part of this sort of stormtrooper type elite force. And the police department rose through the ranks, took all the, the crap he had to do to get through that, and then later got crapped on. But again, I'll yeah. talk about that another time. But uh-huh. the reality is having that context, and now, you know, fast forward in life. He's no longer, haven't been for years. I'm now a young black man and now being exposed and seeing what this, you know, stormtrooper type squad did. And they terrorized the community, literally terrorized the community. I mean, you I, know, it, it, it was it was clear to off your man. If you, you know, and you couldn't touch Rizzo's man. And, you know, you, certain neighborhoods, you just knew you didn't want to get out alive. I'm talking about white neighborhoods, you were black going through it because you couldn't call a cop. Because the cops, A, would not answer the 911 call. And if they got there, they said, uh, turn around and let you get you behind. Well, I'll give you one example. You know what? Let me, me actually was an incident that occurred when I was like 13, 14 years old. Okay. I was a young man going to visit this girl. I was just trying to, you know, just dating this girl. And she lived in this certain area right outside of Philadelphia called Yate, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Now, Yeager was just right outside, literally right outside of Philly. And I had to go through a certain section of Southwest Philly that was all white folk. And but I figured my cousin and I was riding, we had our little 10 speed bikes. We would if we would follow the trolley tracks, we felt as though we could be relatively safe. We turned the corner this one day, going to see this girl, and next thing you know, a frozen beer can came curling, knocked me off my bike, and then some big old grown white man punched my cousin off the bike. What? So now we're in the middle of the street. These two young teenagers. Now my cousin was a much bigger kid, and so you know, but I had I was the smaller kid for him, but I had all the heart. So now <laughs> we're sitting there. So we're sitting there trying to strap these grown behind men. I'm yelling, "Help! Help! Help!" This white man on his porch looked at me, said, "Oh, you." N word, you shouldn't be around any darn way. And you know, and then next thing, some other lady, some nice lady, said, "Leave him alone, leave him alone." And they kind of, you know, punched us a few times and got us up. But that, by that time, you know, the bikes were all messed up. We up here trying to get ourselves out of this neighborhood. But it just goes to show you, man, how certain they didn't care we were kids. These were grown men. They didn't care. We were obviously kids. Did not care. Did not care. So, wow. you know, yeah, man, I, I you know, and it's so funny. We're talking about this, but I'm, I'm saying, myself, I know I had a situation and there it goes. It, it came back to me, you know, but at the time it was traumatizing at the time. Oh, I'm sure. Sometimes that's the thing. I think sometimes events that are traumatizing, uh, oftentimes uh, they are moving to our subconscious thoughts and they're not really available until we have a conversation that kind of triggers those thoughts back around again. Right. But I will tell you, when I first moved here in 2006, um, Philadelphia, everybody was telling me about the Rizzo statue was in front of the government center at the time. And mm. um, everybody explained who Rizzo was and how he was not a good guy, you know, to the city in so many ways. But recognizing during the George Floyd riots, they took they took the Rizzo statue down. And I believe it came down because NBC, Fox and NBC was, um, they, were, they, they were stationed in front of the statue doing their their news their nightly and daily newscasts and mm-hmm. i think at some point they felt okay we'll take this down now because we get national attention otherwise well, i think well, i think it's still been it's still been there well they have listen they have been protests about that statue and i mean that statue for a certain segment of philadelphia was very proud 
to you know because you know these are all the older establishment people hey there once was a time and you know if Rizzo was around this wouldn't be happening he would he would put an absolute stop to this and all that you know right. that talk and everything else and you know uh it, it's it was just a symbol of just horror for a lot of black people in this city uh yeah. you know um during the whole um uh what was it a black panther's time i mean he he gathered is there's, there's, a, there's a, if you ever google black panthers in philadelphia mayor rizzo there's an iconic picture he lined them all up butt naked against the wall and frank rizzo would carry around two pearl handled pistols on one on each hip I mean, talking about cowboy and John Wayneism, he had that kind of, you know, it was that kind of a larger than life, you know, you know, kind of symbolism for him. And he was like this, I'm gonna keep him in line kind of thing. There's an iconic picture. Anybody wants to Google it, you could you'll find it, of him lining up Black Panthers and they were butt naked on the wall in Philadelphia. I mean, it's that kind of stuff, you know, it's just but anyway, the bottom line is that's that's some of the trauma, some of the things that uh, we would go through. And there's countless of stories, I'm quite sure uh, Philadelphians can tell you over the years that uh, they've experienced at the hands of uh, those rogue, negative, horrible cops. Again, now I want to be very clear because I, you know, people who listen to this podcast, you know, might say, you know, while I'm talking, no, we all know every cop is not a, bla- a bad cop. We clearly know that. Right. Uh, but... But we know there's a segment of that population that's that's just, you know, bad apples. And, um, you know, so that's just what it is. But I want to be clear because I don't people start thinking, well, we bashing cops. No, I got a bunch of friends. And, I, of course, a family member who was a former police officer, friends are near dear to my heart. And they're great cops. Great well, cops. You know, but it is important to recognize, too, like, yeah, we, you know, we know that all cops are not out to shoot people, kill them, harass them. I, mean, I worked 20 years in the criminal system myself, so I know a lot of good people right. in the system. There you go. Right? So, there you go. But I do want to, you know, shift just a bit and talk about, as you mentioned earlier, you, for a while, they worked in Corporate America for a period of time. And I and I wonder, like, as I hear a lot of clients who talk about code switching or racism that happens in Corporate America, um, how did you navigate your life through Corporate America? Do you have any... Um, Stories to share, or yeah, how did uh, you move uh, through that period of time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly, uh, we all have some stories in corporate America. Well, if, again, knowing what my age is and going through years of, you know, um, I graduated high school in 1982. So from 82 on, but even before that, I you clearly got the message if you wanted to move and go you know um in corporate america or as you progress in your career you had to present yourself different you, it wasn't no you know i'm just going to do what i want to do you know the environment is different now the environment now a lot of your kids can go off and you know and and operate much differently we paid a heavier price and had to endure different things you know and i'm quite sure generation before me had to endure much more you know what i mean so it's yes. just relative to you know, to that kind of a situation. But um, personally, I so um, there was, a, I had an opportunity to um, be, get into the financial services business through selling insurance uh, with John Hancock, for example. Mm-hmm. And there was an offer, this is all about the whole, um, uh, you know, um, affirmative action time. This is all during the heat of affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was when there was a major shift and culturally, you know, um, you know, corporations trying to or having to integrate, you know, the halls of, of corporate America and have these quotas, let's say, and so forth. So I was part of this entrance program into John Hancock. So they assigned me to this uh, office uh, right outside of Philadelphia in Bucks County. Um, and I was the first well, uh, agent out of this huge agency. This agency had to have at least 100 insurance agents. And I was the first black man out of this agency in Buff wow. County. So now, um, now, the director of that agency was a, honestly a really nice guy. You know, he was he was nice. He, he understood it. He wasn't racist, so to say. So I'm not quite sure. Do deeper than he might have been, but the bottom line, he was—he he didn't. I didn't feel anything about Mike. 
Mike really was a nice guy. He treated me well and embraced my my entrance. But here's the deal. So I remember in this waiting room, and and the way it was set up, it was a, uh, like a little partition, if you will. And I watched one guy after another go into Mike's office. Maybe five minutes go by, and one more, and he would walk back out. Now it was a two door entrance. Uh-huh. This one time, this tall, um, blonde-haired kid around my age walks in the office on the other side, and then all of a sudden, after five minutes, the door to the lobby area where I was sitting opened up, and Mike said, Martin, come on in. Now, later on, I find out that he was bringing guys in to come on in. They were like, hell no, absolutely not. It's, you know, John, John, that's the right thing, blah, blah, blah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right? But right. the young, tall, blonde-haired dude about my age, the reason why, he said, oh, sure, because he had played basketball and had some exposure and experience in being around black culture. And he wasn't afraid to bring me on. And so that was my entrance into corporate America. Wow. At the interview, at the interview, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> you know, having that. So now I walk in, now, mind you, Fearless, I was just, this is who my personality was. I mm-hmm. knew what I was getting into. I knew. Mm-hmm. All I knew was that if I got into the situation, I'm staying to, for, to make a, a lot of money. That for me, mm-hmm. that was my mindset. I didn't give a darn what it was. But that was my entree mm-hmm. into corporate America. You know, just to give you a little example of that. And then, I had, and then once I got in there, of course, the microaggressions, I mean, it wasn't even, I mean, some of the stuff was just macro, just in your face, you know, to, I mean, a situation where, you know, the whole, um, can I touch your hair stuff, you know? Now, I'm, now of course, you wouldn't say that, because right now, I'm, I've been bald now 50 years, but I had, John, you would never believe this, but I had a hair full of hair like you. That was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you had, you, had, you had an afro? Oh, John had an afro, man. Oh, can you believe deal. that? That's good. Yeah, man. I got to think about all pictures. You can see a picture, man. Being an oh, afro. Wow. But, That'd be crazy. Yeah, with hair. That's great. Well, yeah, it is interesting, too, right? How we were told, you know, I grew up in that time where mm-hmm. my dad, as a kid, cut our hair and always told mm-hmm. us to be successful as a black person, black male, yeah, you have to exactly. have a low haircut because that got you space in corporate America man, or other yes, jobs. Man, listen, right? you had you had to you had the code switch, walk the walk, talk the talk, and clearly you had to do that in order to be accepted or to fool them. Now let me just say so so this so it's, it's so it's so layered the microaggressions and systemic racism, John. So listen, so even down so remember now in that transition, remember the names started different when rap culture, hip hop culture hit the scene. You had all these people being named Afrocentric names, Shaniqua, Raekwon, all stuff like that. Well, you know, in my mind, the way I was taught, you know, so look at my name. One of the things that I know for a fact that got me success early on in corporate mm-hmm. America from an insurance standpoint was that my name was not a dead giveaway. Yeah, oh, my yeah. name, I my name was Morgan Edward Wilson Jr. That is not a atypical black person's name. So right. just so what I was given this this so they give you they gave you a territory to work, for example, when I got hired in John Hancock. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, they gave me the worst territory in the agency. And here's what it was. It was an area, two, three areas in Bucks County, Bristol, Croydon, and Levittown. These were considered to be Poor white areas, heavily Italian, Irish, and trust me when I tell you, brother. When I walked on, because back then, old school insurance guys and financial guys, they had a debit they called it, and you walked in the briefcase, and you know I was you it was knocking on the door and introducing yourself as the new agent, brother man. If if I had a dollar for every big hard eye dagger I got walking through a street in a little neighborhood in a row house and talking about I'm the new agent for this area. And they looked at me like, you have ever lost your ever-loving mind. 
Like, are you? Wow. Are you? Are you? Are you kidding? No, this this is this is how it was, man. At the yeah. time, now now, again, I was fearless. I didn't, you know, I was just trying to, you know, break into the scene and 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 stake my claim, you know. Right. You yeah. know, and so, but this, but but here's what this. Now, I'm friends with this with this white guy to this day. His name is John. John was not afraid, and John would take me and walk with me to go to my appointments. He's my he's my manager. He's only a few years older than me. He's my manager, and he wow. you know, had been working there for about three or four years, and he's doing well, established, goes to the ranks of being a manager at the time, and he would go with me on the sales calls, so I would feel safe and comfortable, and that. The, the white folk would accept me or feel like, okay, in court, it's my area, it's my debit. It's not his, it's mine. But he, right. I got to go with him in order for me <laughs> to tell this white man, hey, look, I'm in charge of your financial book of business, your services here at John Hancock. I'm your guy. Man, the calls will come in. How dare you send this? And these are some white folks that have never had a black person in their home ever in their lives. I'm now sitting at the kitchen dining table. You know, oh, so yeah. I, I had, listen, John had to go through a whole bunch of stuff, man. It, it just, it was funny, but, um, you know, things got better at the time, what, and me just going through it, I mean, you know, you got used to it. Some got used to it and accepted, some didn't. I mean, I lost some people. It's all transferred me to another person. I will be, I'll be dead if I get this, you know, <laughs> this is black man my Yeah, I, I had to go through all that, but all in all, it worked out. But it was just the initial, the initial indoctrination into, you know, um, that kind of situation. That's how I cut my teeth, man. Wow. That's how I, I, cut my teeth. I think it's interesting how, as you brought the idea like names and microaggressions and the ways we have to code switch at times and right. fit in and, and be accepted. But I think like what's happening now, people are saying, you know. Cold switching is, you know, getting a little old, and we should no, have to continue, no, no. and we should not have to like change ourselves to fit in exactly. and be included, right? I and was so, just giving what the environment was back then, and it was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was no question. I mean, right. you you had to code switch. If you're gonna make it across America, you better learn how to talk like you know, you know, you know, speak the king's English. <laughs> you know that <laughs> ebonics and y'all mean and yeah, man and what up? Well, you better better not talk in those right. terms unless you back at the barbershop kicking it with your homies you and your buddies you know but but if you're gonna be in corporate america especially that time listen <laughs> but, but but i would say morgan and, and and while that's true we're not far from moving that today like i think i still think even in some areas of academia corporate oh, yeah, america true, true, there's still true. this idea you have to switch up who you are how you are to be in, in the space but i think that's yeah. also hopefully that's um <laughs> A lot of people are now beginning to resist that more, and hopefully we can be be who we are in the space. And uh, you know, I had to have this huge afro now with all this hair now. And mm -hmm. I think um, after just the George Floyd, I just kind of started asking him, "Why am I? Why?" Listen, bro, I'm jealous. I got me. I'm jealous, changes. man. I wish I had that long man you got, bro. I'm <laughs> jealous, man. I'm jealous, man. I ain't gonna lie. I'm hating. But no, I'm telling you, yeah, because it happened because you know after that, you know the barbershops closed for a while. And then I was thinking, why am I going to rush get my haircut? Why am I, you know, conforming to this idea? And I used to, you know, I am who I am today, and this is what's happening. Right. But the, the thing I will also say is looking at how, in spite of those individuals giving you resistance, is a part of you, and I think of all, a lot all black men. There's resiliency and persistence. What is it about Morgan? that against all odds, you still push through and be successful. Ah, oh, man, bro, you're going to make me go there, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a, lot, cool. there's, a lot, there's a lot to my story. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's complex. It's nuanced. Um, um, you know, part of my story is, um, like I told you, well, my mom, my dad and mom were married. I mean, we were, you know, a traditional family, and then they got divorced. And when they got divorced, everything went downhill because that was what I know now, what I've known for years, that my mom was battling some level of mental illness. Mm -hmm. I say level because um, there's all types of... And again, back then, they just would say, oh, Elaine, she's just a little off, or, you know, 
they would have these names for it, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, so um, that caused major issues and problems in my upbringing that, quite frankly, was traumatic and just um, devastating and brutal to me early on in my, in my childhood. And um, um, so to give you, try to give you the cliff notes as best I can, um, I basically left home at 15, um, had to raise myself in a lot of ways. Not to raise myself, I went to live with my grandmother. But don't misunderstand, it wasn't like my grandmother was well off and established. She was dirt poor, had nothing, and was only getting a social security check. So it wasn't like I was going to a place where, you know, the bottom line for me was I had safety. I wasn't living in squalor anymore. And um, I had basically a good meal to eat. My grandmother was a phenomenal cook. I'm the cook I am today because of her. I am the God-fearing man I am today because of her. So like I told you early on in, in in, in in the podcast that, you know, there's a bunch of us that if it wasn't for our grandmamas, my, yeah. Big Mama, save enough, we wouldn't have survived. And that's yeah. my story for sure. But what it also was, I was a young 15-year-old with no stability, no guidance, which goes into also, there is an author that wrote this phenomenal book for young men. This guy's name is John G. Taylor. He has this book called <laughs> Young Men Without Fathers. This was a phenomenal guy. Had I had a book like this, or now I had mentors my uncle was a mentor the same one who was a cop but his life went tumbling in a, in a, in a crazy way once he uh, left the police force unceremoniously left the police force mm-hmm. now he had some things of, of some moderate of success but he eventually went to prison but then somewhat rose from the ashes got out of prison Got through college. This is this is this is a funny situation. I mean, what not funny is just a, just a story in, in itself. Got mm-hmm. through college, but came out, but had struggles still. Even with the college degree, here's how systemic racism is. Mm-hmm. His guy went to prison, goes and gets a college education, mm-hmm. but then gets a great job in in the uh, restaurant food management service. That's what his degree was in: restaurant, hotel, restaurant management. Gets a job, but then. And they had the job for like, you know, double digit years, but then they decide to do these background checks. Mm-hmm. And of course, what happens, his prison record comes up. And here's a guy that's serviced, and I won't name the corporation, but it's the fast food chain, everybody knows him and, and probably loves to this day. Decide to do this, and they absolutely pulled a rug out from this guy that was a, I mean, a major restaurant manager and was like, you know, awards out the wazoo. His life hasn't been right since. Wow. That's the kind of stuff. So fast forward. So now my uncle gives me a great stuff about manhood. And again, part of me being a man, I am today was because of him. But there was double, double edged, little womanizer too. So I got all of it. I was his best pupil in that area. I was, you know, <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I was learning at the feet of the biggest womanizer in the, in the city, okay? And I learned everything. Too young, no guidance, father gone, and I was just a young 15-year-old just doing the most. Mm-hmm. The negative. Mm-hmm. And also the positive, you know? And so... Um, the positive was, if you want to run these women, Morgan, you got to have some money. Go hustle and get you a job. Not the bad hustle, because again, remember, he had a background to be a police officer. So he wasn't trying to you know, set me up to go knock somebody in the head and sell right. drugs. He was saying, go get two, three jobs so you can look good, smell good, and drive a fine car to get all these women. Mm-hmm. That was my early understanding of what manhood was supposed to be about. Got so it. what happens? what happens to me, John? I become a teen parent at 16. Mm. So, you know, things happen. Mm-hmm. Now, this is why I say life is complex and you got to understand that. But yeah. always in the back of my mind, some internal stuff about early on spirituality, my grandmother giving me depositing those things about God fearing and 
I, I got baptized at, at eight years old, you know. So I had all that in my spirit that would always challenge that negative stuff that I was also experiencing going in as an early age. Eventually, after going having some horrible experiences, learning and going through, I changed right going through high school and at the end, changing my whole paradigm, my thinking about, and then coming to grips with my own uncle's life and all the negatives that happened to him, some not by choice, some by choice, and I had to make a choice. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing, John, I had a choice to make because I had other positive things that were deposited in me. And I had right. examples to see but some people don't even have a choice to make. That's all they know. Right, right. Herein yeah. lies why fatherhood is so important. Mm-hmm. Because I that was a, a major, major monumental void in my life, John. That had I got, had my father in my life that was going to give me the right thing, steer me in the right direction, make me understand fully and complete what manhood was. Like my uncle, I don't want to demonize him because he gave me a lot of who I am as a manhood, as a man in my life, who I am today. But it was right. mixed in with the negative, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, and, and I, so I'm giving that balance to it. But I had enough that I had, when I came to the crossroads in my life, I made the right choice and made the right shift early enough that I could bounce back, even from after becoming a teen parent and all that kind of stuff that came along with all that. It changed my life. And I was able to go out there and get it done, you know. Uh, yeah. But I hope that answers your question. No, I was going to tell you. Um, thanks for sharing the information because I think it's important to look at. Uh, yeah, we we all are like complex intersectionality people, right? There's a lot of parts that makes us who we are. It's not just one part of us. So I think all of those stories and systems are important. When we think about, and also thanks for the book plug. I appreciate that. Um, hey man, listen, but, this, but, but it's powerful, it's powerful. There's a, this chapter that, that really is, I think it helps out with a lot of black men, is you said it was a chapter, in your, I think it's called Keeping Cool, Keeping cool. Yes. How to Keep Cool. Right. And what it talks about is when black men are faced with aggression, you can't always meet aggression with aggression. And don't, mis- don't misunderstand me, I'm, I, I'm not the turn the other cheek type dude. I came from Southwest right. Philly. Trust and believe, okay? Don't let this suit and tie fool you. You know, I had, that was one another one of the things that my uncle gave to me. Understanding how to knuckle up and fight. I mean, literally, I had, you have to learn. It's going to be a survivor in the hood. You got to understand how to hold your hand. That's just, right. that's just, that's just, that's just, I can't be more real than that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I got yeah. a heavy dose of that early on to understand how to deal with that to survive on the block, mm-hmm. you know, now, but your book clearly displays and trying to help these young men understand, look, you know, you can't solve every problem with your fist. Well, right. now, they, one day, now, it's all about the gun and, and everything else, but you can't always, you know, meet aggression with aggression. You know, how do you first try to avoid even, you know, the situation of escalation, you know, and and what you can do and and try to do it as best you can and keeping your cool you know it's not all about what happens it's basically how you react not so much you know to a to a situation and so you know those things so that's why i want to reference your book a lot of times that was a, a good a good chapter in your book man keeping cool so i wanted to just share that with the audience let them know this book that you wrote man was phenomenal and i think it should it should be required reading i black yeah. boy any black person, any person of color, any young man of color, to read you that. Know, book. I, yeah, no, I agree with that. And you know, and a lot of those ideas in that book came from my dad, as I perhaps uh, shared before. Is like you know, my mom died when I was seventeen. My mom and dad were married when I was like I wasn't born yet. I think I got married when I was eighteen years old. But like, um, and so my dad raised my um, five brothers and I and my two sisters, right? But he gave us all of this information about how to be. How to be be the person you need to be for yourself in your life. How to be man, be a man, but more importantly, how to be a human being. I, I use that language better. Right. But and one of the, and one of the things that um, so I dedicate the book to him, and you know he's 
And one and one day soon, he will he'll do the podcast. He keeps saying he's going to come on the podcast, <laughs> but he keeps putting me off. So one day, I'm, I'm just going to wrangle him down and go home and visit him and make him do the podcast. Yeah. Uh, but he, he gave us all a lot of tools, and so that's why it's important for me to share. Because I, I always believe what we know is not just for us, it's for other people also share with other people in the world. So give it give it away what what we know about um his life. But I know we're about to wrap up the time here. But Morgan, I do want to say, you know, again, as you have really done so well today, and just like putting out your life and saying things in context and how you how experiences, conversations, mentors have shaped you in the world. Uh, I think it's really important to highlight some of those things. Also, I would just wonder, how would you, what would you say to a young man growing up today? Like what were some, some of the things you would share with him about how to be, uh, be himself, how to be successful? Um, hmm. yeah, what, would you, what would you offer to a young man today? One thing that helped me is that I had a, I, I mentioned to you earlier, about you asked me who am I and I've always had a ferocious appetite for knowledge learning exploration and being open to newness of the world I always looked at the world at just with wonder and awesomeness mm-hmm. I looked at the world as something to find out about so one of the things my uncle gave me and I can go back to him because he was such an influence in my life again it was out of the context of negative, of neg- I say negative, of womanizing. But what he wanted to do was have women all over the city. So what he did, he would he, he gave me that mindset to go beyond the hood, go beyond 56th Street. Know what's in Mount Airy. Know how they live in Chestnut Hill. Know where they live in Oak Island. Know where they live in South Philly. How does that, what are different environments and cultures and things and new? So for me, again, off of a negative context reason behind it, it helped me to understand how the appreciation of exploration and being curious, curiosity. This saying, you know, there's a lot of old sayings that they would say back in the day. Some of it was true, but it was also in the context. It said, curiosity killed the cat. Well, listen, not necessarily. Right. You know, <laughs> curiosity helps people. And then they will also say, the other thing we say about that, the, the juxtaposition phrase would be, oh, you know, no, I'm just curious. I'm a precocious, <laughs> I'm a precocious kid. I want to know. One of the things I drove my family crazy about was I always why, 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 why? Oh. You ask about everything. Why you ask why all the time? Why, why, why? Because I'm nosy. I want to know. <laughs> I, I, I'm a man of the world, man. I, I was yeah. a renaissance. I was a renaissance kid, man. I had this. I, I wanted to know, man. I always had this appreciation about stuff. And I and right. I got to give my mom some credit about that. My mom, even though she had struggles, my mom also had this great desire for fashion early on before her mental illness really changed the game a little bit. But she wanted to know about different things, clothing and, you know, fine foods and stuff like that. So I had that sort of, so that, that's what I was with a young guy. Please be open-minded to explore, not be so judgmental. Mm-hmm. Uh, read. There's this, right now, you can't ask for a more opportune time there's no excuse for anybody who wants to know and understand not to know. Because right. you got Google, you got areas to research, you can you got this, this this phone I'm talking to you on is probably one of the most powerful instruments in the world right now. Right. For anybody who has a desire to want to learn. And right. that's what I would say to my younger self and to any young man right now today. Listen, have a thirst for knowledge. It is so easy now. The, the the windows of opportunity are open right now. Not like it used to be. You had to go to a library, catch a bus to go somewhere, to get to a library, to then cross-reference the card. You know, you get the card and try to cross-reference. Man, you're not supposed to understand what it was oh, like God. back in the day. 
to go to school. That's the, um, what's it called? The Dewey Decimal System? Dewey Decimal System. That drove me crazy. They don't understand, John. They don't understand. They got it, man. Please. They don't understand. So it's no reason. It's no reason. And that's what I would say to a young fellow right now, or young, a young man right now. Don't be afraid. Don't listen to people that say, might say, family, friend, or foe. About oh, why you want to learn? Why you want to do that? Why you want to be like a white boy? All that kind of negative, stigmatized crap, you know? No, man, no, no. Have an appreciation for knowledge and 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 to to have a want to explore newness in the world. Right now, man, we're so we're so connected now because of the internet and technology today than ever before, you know. Right. Um, you know, it's it's no reason not to explore, not to know. That's what I would say. Thank you. It's really good. It's really good. I think it's also important to look at how much exposure is important. Being exposed to different neighborhoods, different lifestyles, because it also creates for you. Oh, there is something beyond my block, my community, oh, my neighborhood. Was, and that was that's huge. Why I say it was one of the greatest gifts yeah. my uncle gave me. You know, um, although the context around it was was not so great, what it showed and paid dividends for me because I wasn't afraid to go off the beaten path. I wasn't afraid to explore, you know, I wasn't afraid to venture out, you know. I didn't just, I just didn't have that fear. So that's what allowed me to overcome uh the hood and overcome getting away, overcoming the the, the huge obstacles and abuses that I went through as a child. So I didn't really get to all that, you know. Um yeah. you know that's 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 you know those were things that I know so many of my friends and or and family who didn't recover who who for whatever reason couldn't get out of the circumstances and got stuck and um wasn't wasn't able to excel and quite frankly perished or some my own brother you know so you know I, it's so much it's so much more to the story man and i i just would tell any young man um don't let um negative um narratives of family hold you back um be be courageous be brave be bold explore and be open to the newness of the world that's what i would say and, and be open to having um as, as dr ardu alan wilson says all the time create courageous conversations right being able to mm. talk to you about the mm. things you don't it's understand I, yes right and being able to yes. ask those difficult questions and one of the things you mentioned earlier too is like mental illness, right? When we think about yeah. um, the black community, black men, you know, more more often now in my practice, I have more black men um, in my practice now than I ever had before, which is fantastic. They're bringing That's their you. wives, they're yes. bringing their, their boyfriends, their partners, mm -hmm. um, kind of mm -hmm. just trying to understand life and talk about being depressed and anxiety and all those things. So when you think about mental illness in the black community, are you also seeing those changes? We're, we're more likely now to talk about it and supposed to run away from it more? Huge, huge. I just, well, it's, it is it is what I always say to RG, it is in the zeitgeist. Mental health and and being, shedding the stigma and being able to talk about it. It's it's like, it's the new sexy now. It's, 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 it's hip, it's trendy right now. Every yeah. celebrity now, every athlete are talking about it. I actually, there is a tie. It's 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 being it's normal. It's being normalized. Normalized. Not normalized. Normalized and having a conversation and not people not being afraid to talk about their levels or their challenge of mental illness. And because you know, the old stigma was when people say she mental illness, like like they would say about my mom, oh she ain't she ain't wrapped too tight or she's you know two cans short of a six pack and stuff. Those kind of old horrible negative pejorative sayings right that they would say about people who but but it was always to the extreme people would automatically think oh you're talking about somebody that's sitting over in a corner you know like you know looking you know totally out of sorts and you know you know you know to the far extreme well, no, there's levels of this stuff. It could be just, hey, you know, I'm having a bad day. I'm having a blue day. And maybe I need to just talk to somebody. Get me out of my funk. But that's a level of mental illness. You know, uh, there's levels of depression. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, going to be walking, you know, like a derrick on the street. You know, it doesn't right. mean that. You know, it could be just the everyday, you know, stuff of the blah. You lost your job. So you're going through a little bit of, a, of, a, of an issue right now. You may need to talk to somebody. That's what we need to understand. When we having difficulties and challenges, 
in life. You're going through a divorce. You know, you're going through a death, you know, uh, dealing with grief. Well, that's a level of mental illness challenge. Grief is a level of mental illness. Or not, I wouldn't even know, but it's a level of, 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 of grief is a, a challenge that you may need to talk to somebody about to help you yeah. get through the process, to get through it, you know. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what it is. And I think that's changing for sure for people. And mm-hmm. I think the conversations people are having now, um, you know, they're being had and so many more men are being open to it. And I just, I'm just glad that people like you and RG have been there. You know, you guys have been tilling the soil and talking about this stuff for years, man. And mm-hmm. right now you guys are poised and, you know, you know, I've talked to you many times, RG has, about the practice. We're just at, almost at capacity at this point because, you know, there's so much, so many people now looking and trying to get help and seeking help. And, um, I mean, listen, something we didn't talk about, too. The LGBTQ community, man, is yes. is, is, is is being impacted on a, on a grand scale right now, you know, and, um, and people are talking about it because that's also another layered component around, you know, uh, the challenges around mental health and so forth and the stigmas and, oh man, we can go in, we can go down another <laughs> rabbit hole. We can talk another, another two, three hours on that, bro. You know what I mean? I know, right? Because there's so many layers, right? Just sexuality, stigma, mental illness, mental health. But one of the things I also, you know, would, would say, maybe at some point we'll do part two, looking at sexuality and mental health, right? As a whole conversation for itself. But I think one of the things also to highlight in what you were saying just now is looking at how do we have these conversations? How do black men, how they begin to come forth and hey, hey, me too, I have an issue with my mental illness. And we know, like, I know I'm gonna say this name and some folks don't like this guy, but Dax Prescott, Dallas Cowboy oh. quarterback. Listen, bro. If you can't separate the no, if you can't separate your your loyalty to the to to the to, to the green and white and to the and, uh, versus the blue and white, if you can't separate that based on this conversation, mental health, I take my hats off. This is the only time you'll ever see me get any praise. Anything got to do with a cowboy, you know what I mean? But, <laughs> but I will but- I will I will compartmentalize. And be a grown ass man <laughs> and, and compartmentalize professionalism about this conversation to say, this is exactly what I mean. My hat goes off to that because this dude, here, here's the, oh man, bro, John, we could talk another hour, man. It, it's so many layers and complexities into this stuff, man. But one of the things that was very uh, admirable about him and inspiring by him, the level of vulnerability. Yeah, but that's, right. but that's but that's being modeled for yeah. so many people. I mean, you talk about Charlemagne the God in the Breakfast Club. This yeah. dude has put his life out on full display, and he's a huge champion and advocate for mental me, me, mental health, mental wellness, and going to have a therapist. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many other brothers out there now that are really having the courageous conversation that connects us all more to the brand of RG. But but yeah, that's as it's it that major hats off to that press guy for that. No because question. what that because what that does is allow people to see to see themselves. Oh I I'm I'm that guy. I'm you know whatever Correct. the the person's story is, they can see themselves as somebody telling their own story. So I think it, the more people are exposing this uh their health, their mental health issues, just like we're talking about physical health all the time and being muscular and strong and having amazing abs. We can discuss mental illness in the same conversation, the same context, um, and make it all feel normal. It's, it's a part of life. Oh man! And talking about it without any shame is important. There you go. No shame or blame about it. No judgment about it. I mean, but you have multiple. I mean, I can't name there's so many, so many athletes across the sports arena. Athletes, both male and female. That I mean, you talk about Naomi Osaka. You're talking about yeah. um, what's the gymnast name? Um, uh, What's your name? Um, Simone Biles. Simone Biles. Simone Biles. I mean, you're talking about uh, so many of the athletes now are are, are talking about not being afraid to to deal with the challenges and share with the world that they have a challenge, that they have a struggle, and they got to talk to a professional to deal with the struggle, to bounce back and be stronger mentally and physically to do the pressures of their chosen profession. So it's 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 there, man. And I and I and I'm glad that um as a society we're becoming we're trending more towards norm, normalizing 
uh, the importance of, listen, as a people, we've been traumatized and dealing with mental health issues for 400 plus years, man. Exactly. exactly. Since they came and got us, man. And that systemic racism has really done um, a, such a major job on us and our own psyche, how we self-inflicted wounds, how we, I mean, you know, just as a people, you know, are negative and toxic towards each other. But that's with the backdrop and the underpinnings of systemic racism. So we right. can go through all that. Of course, they don't only want to talk about it now, you know, that critical right. race theory. They don't want to even, they want to totally sanitize the history books. They, they, you know, they, they don't even want to talk about this stuff, man, because they, it's, it's, it's horrific. It's but horrific. The thing, but the thing about that, Morgan, is a lot of people who, who are arguing about critical race theory is a framework and they don't even know what it is. Well, get yeah, well, well, no, no. Well, see what what it is is that they understand. Gosh, man. So I don't want I don't want to take it too far. I could I could take this thing in so many ways. I can have a conversation on this and what right. the underpinning the backdrop is all about. But um, but I don't want to I don't want to take this podcast. You know, too much, <laughs> man. We going on the road, brother, and this and this thing will be lit. <laughs> It's I know we're going to do a, another discussion about this, but I think it's important to talk about that and, and the, sure. the context and how people are using that language as as divisive, as a as, as a divisive way in our educational system, without having full knowledge of what critical race theory is. So we'll, we'll come we'll come back to that. But yeah, now, yeah. then we got to go. So one thing I would just say finally, like looking at um, the mental health issues people are having. Um, and I know um, Dr. R.J. Allen Wilson is busy. My practice, I'm like doing two month wait lists with people for now. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. Because, because the phone calls are not stopping, which is great, but it's also a thing like, okay, we need more people, more well, black men, more black yeah, women right. into Correct. the role of mental, becoming mental health therapists. We need more of us need to do this work. So one thing, I would ask, one thing I would ask you, one last question is, tell me one positive thing about, about, about being a black man. Wow. <laughs> wow. I guess that's is so even in spite of it all. Uh-huh. It's something about a black man, the strength that we exude. Come on, man. You know how it is, brother. We got the swag. We got the swagger. We walk in a room, man. There's a presence yeah. of of royalty, regalness mixed in with depends upon your perspective intimidation because we know the big black man in the room especially if it's our mounting challenge brothers and sisters just will have a problem just of our very presence right but don't understand it's not to be to be met with aggression or to be threatened by it it's just that we got that thing <laughs> I, mean, I, hate put, I, hate, I hate to put it in, in such in such you know granular you know terms, but we just no. got a brother. It's something about us, man. We got that thing, right. you know. And and, yeah. and and it's and it's and it's that I'm here in spite of all the hell and trauma this world has put on me. Now, in spite yeah. of how you view me and want to demonize me and tell me I ain't worth nothing, I'm three-fifths of a man, in spite of all that, I'm still going to walk up in here proud and my head hung high. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's what I need to constantly hold on to, man. And hold on for dear life and no matter what happens, mm-hmm. just don't let them beat it, beat it out of us. Because that's 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 our uh, that's our mojo, that's our swag, that's our thing, man. And 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 let's be honest, other folks want it. They want it. Yeah. Yeah. No, nah, Morgan. That is that's that's great because I think one of the things that I understand. I'm glad you said that. Is that we um, have a presence walking into a room. Folks know we came into the room. People know that a black man walks oh, into the room. This way we way we move into the space we're in. But to all of my young clients, walk like you own the place you're in. You belong oh. there. Just, just walk like you own it already. Right? You already listen, man. They've been wanting to follow us and be us. You know, patting themselves after us for so many years, man. And, and just so own that, own that. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, all you the know, great, all the great, all, that all we the have. great. 
Right. And, uh, and so thinking about people who've come before us, just own all that history, all the stuff you just said, despite all of that, we are still great and amazing men. So listen, Mr. Morgan Wilson, dude, I can talk to you all What's day, up? right? You have so much we can say, right? But we're going we're gonna to end the conversation for today, but come back again with part two, looking at sexual oh, yeah, mental health. Sure. I, I have no problem. Cause we, right. There's a whole piece. Because something you, met, you mentioned, we kind of talked on, kind of touched on it about the whole uh, LGBTQ community stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, there is an aspect of my life through my brother's eyes that I can talk to you about. And I think you and I, I think I shared some with you about that um, in a private conversation you and I had and we had, a, but there's a whole other piece about my evolution yeah, as a man yeah, yeah, yeah. around yeah. that whole piece. So we can talk about that stuff too, man. Yeah. So I think it'd be good to get into that conversation because there's probably a lot of other men Who's had that same evolution as well, and, sure. and giving them giving them space and voice to talk about that, I think is important. So we are scheduled Morgan E. Wilson back for part two, and uh, again, man, e. Wilson Jr. Get, Morgan E. Wilson, I'm a junior, man. I'm sorry, Morgan E. Wilson <laughs> Jr. Let me get that. It's Morgan E. Wilson Jr. Let me get that right. Let me let me put ownership there. Right. Sorry about that. It's all good. It's all good, man. Just but no, man. Yeah. Thanks again for your time today and your 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 authentic, uh, authenticity and vulnerability to the conversation. Uh, John, it's, it's my pleasure. Much man. All my pleasure, man. No question. Celebrate you, man, and your accomplishments, man. You're doing a heck of a thing. Uh, you know, again. Congratulations on being a doctor, getting your PhD, man. That's huge, huge, huge. And uh, I'm glad you're doing this podcast, man. Having these conversations are huge. I I hope people listen to it, tune in. I'm I talk about it all the time, man. People to check out your podcast. Um, it's going to really open up some eyes and have and continue the conversation. Continue to have a space and a place for Black men to have these conversations to explore and uh, and be open about some things. So. Yes, sir. Well, Good thank shout you. Out again. To you man. Thanks again. All right, man. Have a good Bye. day, okay? All right. Take care. All right. Okay. All right. Bye.